Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction. We were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. This is the second part of our two-part series with John Pacenti and Pat Beal, who have both done in-depth reporting on the opioid epidemic for the Palm Beach Post. Today, we continue our discussion on the legacy of deceptive sales practices established by Purdue Pharma and perpetuated by others in the industry, such as Insys Therapeutic. We begin with a clip from the Insys Therapeutics-produced rap video on the virtues of persuading doctors to prescribe higher doses of the company's liquid opioid, Subsys. I don't know when uh, the slippery slope of uh, ethics, uh, you know, in selling these drugs to doctors uh, kind of had the tipping point. But, I mean, Alex Berlikoff, you know, sensed it early on. I mean, he jumped into, he was a high school counselor and basketball coach, and he jumped into pharmaceuticals uh, uh, selling Prozac for Eli Lilly, and uh, he got fired. Uh, you know, for uh, for sending for coming up with a uh, a marketing plan to send uh, Prozac to to the mail, uh, you know. So that that made headlines then. So he made a splash right away. He then migrated over to Janssen Pharmaceuticals, which does the fentanyl patch, and then he uh, went to Cephalon, where he perfected this uh, speaker program to incentivize docs and. By this time, you know, by the time he was at Incis, you know, we've already had this uh, these settlements with Purdue Pharma, you know, the $634.5 million in 2007. And when he left Cephalon, you know, around then, uh, they had also had to pay a settlement for uh, pursuing off-label prescriptions, uh, $425 million. So when they got... You know, when, when he got to Incis and he says, you know, this let, let's uh, go for the off-label prescriptions uh, for this fentanyl product, they're probably thinking that at the worst they would uh, face a hefty fine. But that was before, you know, the this epidemic really took off and they've been kind of caught in that vice. And now they're the top executives and doctors throughout the country and the sales were all facing criminal charges. And you know, uh, in fact, way back in 2007, when the Department of Justice um, settled with Purdue Pharma, mm-hmm. 
um, there there was uh, quite a bit of controversy about you know why these you know I mean those were criminal charges that it was it was right. you know settling up with and why hadn't anybody gone to jail. In the controversial settlement with Purdue Pharma in 2007, no one went to jail. Consequently, today, the fines that are risked by pharmaceutical companies for essentially the same business practices are calculated as a cost of doing business. From a business perspective, if you're Insys and John Kapoor, the CEO, the founder there, he's like, well, you know, let's do a cost analysis and see if we can, you know, corner the market off-label prescriptions by getting these doctors to just prescribe our product, our federal product, and uh, the worst that can come to it is, you know, probably one of these fines. I, I, I can't, I'm sure they didn't think that they would be facing criminal charges and being on trial as they are at this moment. Three former executives pleaded guilty to misdemeanors. Right. So the company, the corporation itself, I think, uh, pled guilty to, you know, a criminal charge. Um, uh, the uh, president, the top attorney, the former chief medical officer, each pled guilty to a misdemeanor charge of misbranding. And so, and, and Purdue's uh, uh, pled guilty to a felony charge of misbranding. So, you know, that generated about $634 million in, in fees. But, you know, what, what is, um, if I can bring, I'm trying to pull up a, Statistics. The year after that plea deal with Brownlee, OxyContin prescriptions rose by 185%. So when you're talking about just money damages, you can you can kind of get a feel for, I don't know, is that going to resolve the issue? Well, it obviously didn't. Cephalon, the next year, also pleaded guilty to misdemeanor charges of misbranding drugs. So, and that... I mean, if anything, it seemed to uh, encourage. So the cases of misbranding against the pharmaceutical companies dating back to 2007 have not acted as a deterrent. And misbranding has persisted in the industry. But John explains why the INSYS case could be different. Everybody's paying attention, I'm sure, that, uh, you know, that the the whole top executives, all the executives, are facing RICO charges. They're not even like, you know, fraud charges. These are racketeering charges. I mean, there was a time in, during the prosecution that, you know, the judge in that case in Massachusetts was saying, I don't know, government, if you can really, you know, go down this RICO avenue. And rather than, you know, change course, uh, the federal government uh, doubled down and they brought in the prosecutor who, who uh, did the trial against Whitey Bolger, you know, they have, so they're, they're going full bore. And in the first few days of trial here has not gone well for the defendants. For instance, uh, you know, John Kapoor is blaming Alec Burlikoff, like, you know, he didn't know what Burlikoff was doing. But Kapoor cannot get away from the, that he created a prior authorization center in Phoenix where he was, which was, the, which was crucial to getting these prescriptions approved by insurance companies. In 2012, as INSYS was ramping up sales of subsys, only 33% of the subsys prescriptions were getting approved. So they took matters into their own hands, creating a call center and having employees at the company call in, posing as if they're from the doctor's office to get pre-approvals from the insurance providers. 
Oh yeah, they would lie all the time. They caught him lying on tape. They got him, you know, they got him lying up and he uh, was. I mean, Berlikoff said he wanted to uh, emulate the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, and he came pretty close. He would place salespeople at doctors' offices. So there's this one, this, this one patient who comes in. Her father and mother are with her. She's a woman in her late 20s. And they say, look, she's had problems with OxyContin in the past. We want no opioids. She has really bad back pain, you know, but no opioids. The doctor prescribes OxyContin for her. Somehow, somehow she gets OxyContin and then moves her to, to substance. I mean, they're, they're knowledgeable. They're, they're educated parents trying to keep their daughter from doctor's office. This incest salesperson was in the exam room with her. They were also known, according to documents, to go to hospital rooms and encourage doctors there and nurses there to uh, administer substance. And there's one footnote. I mean, there's. I mean, this company has been bleeding out in the justice system throughout the country. I mean, every AG, not every, but numerous AGs have have student. Uh, stockholders have sued them, and patients have sued them. And in a footnote of one of these uh, pleadings is uh, is this that this sales rep, you know, was in the hospital room uh, when the patient died of sepsis overdose. So, I mean, I think that kind of uh, shook that sales rep to the point that she might have left the company after that. But also, you know, on the Wolf of Wall Street, I mean, sex was a big part, you know, sex, the implied sex and real sex was a big part of the sales pitch for this company. I mean, um, they, in Oregon, uh, you know, they, this sales rep was holding what she called, quote, unquote, tequila parties for doctors. In Phoenix, one sales rep uh started a consensual relationship with one with a doctor who before was not really meeting his quota, according you know, to Alec Berlikoff, but after she got involved, he became one of the top uh, prescribers in Arizona and I believe in the nation. Uh, that sales rep got a, got a bonus. Uh, so this company was, <laughs> was very, I mean, took, took the, took this marketing, uh, scheme uh, way beyond any other company had ever done in getting doctors to prescribe any kind of medicine. John speaks of the realities of these strong inducements that doctors are given to prescribe opioids and the challenges of reeling them in. I think that it's a uh, manifestation of our healthcare system here in this country. Uh, I think doctors are under more, uh, think about a doctor, how he or she has got to be a doctor. How many times have they made the cut? You know, first in high school, then, you know, they're the top of their class in high school, then they're the top of their class in undergrad, and then they go to medical school and they have to, like, you know, sort, you know, make it so they can get a residency and an internship at a hospital. And once there, they're also, they're, they could wash out there, and they finally make it to their practice. And they are incredibly in debt. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And then they find that 
it's not what they if they set a private practice, not what they thought it would be. They are uh, doing paperwork like 30 to 40 percent of their time. The money, the, the big bucks are not there. They're still in debt. And then here comes, you know, this uh, former cashier at Publix saying, hey, you should uh, tell your patients uh, who have uh, back pain to use uh, this fentanyl drug. And if you do, you know, I might have some speaking opportunities for you. And uh, why don't you uh, call me and we'll go out for drinks, uh, you know. And I think it's, when we're looking at a solution, and I think that we got to start thinking about how we can start taking care of these doctors and be on the outlook for uh, their, uh, you know, being susceptible to this kind of uh, pressure tactics. In fact, I talked to someone at the uh, Florida Atlantic Un University uh, School of Medicine, and they now teach a class to doctors to, you know, to look out for these kind of sales tactics. So. None of this could, you know, none of this would happen if the doctor didn't write the prescription. So I think it's, you know, if we're going to, I don't know if we can ever um, modify the behavior of pharmaceutical companies, but if they're not getting what they want from the doctors, then that may be the, the solution. You know, one of the, one of the things that, um, particularly in my more recent reading that, you know, has, has occurred to me over again, and it was actually, I can't take credit for it, it was something that was told to me by the DEA agent who was in charge of capturing El Chapo. And, and he said, well, you know, talking about poor policies and regulation, whether it was pills or the transition to heroin, he said, you know, the cartels really understand addiction. And it seems to me until our policymakers and our regulators and um, our physician groups and our teaching hospitals understand addiction as well as the Mexican cartels do, then, um, then we're in for a rough ride, you know? I, you know, I wonder if sometimes it just doesn't come down to are we willing to accept known science and then act on that knowledge. Next we discuss the practice of targeting what the industry describes as opioid-naive patients. That's what happened with several of these, these uh, people who are suing incest. These are like soccer moms who went in, you know, for like, hey, I have back pain, and they were giving this, this uh, medicine called sepsis. They had no idea it was an opioid. They had no idea it was what it was. They never heard of fentanyl, you know. They, they thought it was like, Something, you know, that was not, not going to make them uh, inoperable, you know, not going to put them in bed in which they couldn't even, you know, get to the bathroom. Uh, but that's, and so they were completely unaware of, of what they were getting into when they were prescribed these drugs. Certainly with Purdue, um, you, would, you would see opioids being prescribed to people for, um, for ailments that, that were, were just, you know, extraordinarily common. And Purdue Marketing showed that it was these individuals, you know, who um, had not taken opioids before, were going to be a huge market for them, people with lower back pain. Um, we know of, you know, teenagers, for instance, um, uh, young children with migraine headaches. 
Uh, the elderly in particular, even though, you know, for someone who is elderly to be on opioids has, a, you know, any range of um, potential problems. So those were, I mean, as groups and as categories, those were the um, groups that you would think of as being opioid naive, including, and, and I mean very young children as well. Um, there was to give you an idea, I mean, I think Purdue had at one point funded a very interesting continuing medical education module for AMA. But you could also see this this coming out, this this whole thought of aggressive treatment with opioids for children. And um, there was a game that was created for doctors who wanted to find out and gauge the level of pain of their um, uh, nonverbal or preverbal patients, and so there was a game. And at the end of the game, it said very specifically, whatever you do, do not give them an option to say there is no pain. Yeah, so that's pretty opioid naive. You know, one of the interesting things um, in Purdue's early marketing materials um, was a few graphs where they were describing um, kind of the evolution of uh, Purdue, you know, where they where Purdue wanted OxyContin to be going, and they described OxyContin and the um, its description for the FDA as for moderate to severe pain and especially cancer pain as something of a foot in the door to get providers comfortable with the idea of prescribing OxyContin for very serious and painful ailments as a means to eventually get them comfortable enough to prescribe for things that, um, well, we've talked about it, back sprains, you know, shoulder injuries, uh, relatively minor issues. Purdue Pharma executives developed a strategy to meet their profitability goals by keeping patients on their drugs longer. How did they do that? By promoting higher dosages and giving away free opioid savings cards. Purdue's campaign to extend the average treatment duration was an overwhelming success. Meanwhile, there was a national study of tens of thousands of medical and pharmacy claims record that revealed two-thirds of the patients who take opioids for 90 days were still taking them five years later. And most disturbing of all, patients who took opioids longer than 90 days were 30 times more likely to overdose and die from them. More than 30,000, I believe more than 30,000 coupons that were um, sent out. And basic, basically it was get, get your first pills free, you know. Um, and, um, you know, when I, when I hear that, I'm reminded that every single time I think I have, you know, read or seen or heard all of the reporting that could possibly be done on Purdue Pharma, something else pops up, and and the Massachusetts, you know, the Massachusetts litigation or this this most recent um, filing um, is certainly indicative of that. And I'll never forget, like around this time, around 2000, that I was talking to a former prosecutor, and he says, you know, John, do you ever wonder why you keep seeing these uh, Walgreens, you know, these drugstores right across the street from each other where CVS and Walgreens would be right across the street from each other? I mean, you would think that they wouldn't be able, they would cancel out each other's business. Well, that's, you know, they were, he said that the opioids uh, prescriptions were what was uh, driving these, uh, these big drugstores to, you know, increase construction. 
uh, throughout throughout the nation. I mean, it is kind of odd if you think about it. And you'll see time and time again. You'll see here and somewhere. You'll see a Walgreens right across from a CBS, <laughs> and then down the street is a mom and pop pharmacy. We talked about the unusual practice of distributors self-policing suspicious shipments. You know, clearly they weren't. Um, there was one distribution center in Florida, you know, and it was sending, oh, I don't know, I think one of my personal favorites is like more than, you know, one million, um, uh, I think it was oxycodone uh, tablets to one pharmacy in Hudson, Florida, which is, you know, a population of fewer than 20,000. Uh, you know, everybody everybody knew what, uh, you know, what was going on. And at one distribution center, uh, one of the people who was handling, you know, um, uh, fulfillment requests by, by pharmacies said of one pharmacy's request, I don't know how they're even going to put these on their shelves. There are so many bottles of pills that we're talking about. It was, you know, it was pretty egregious. It was pretty obvious. And then you got down to the mom and pop retailers. There was one mom and pop retailer um, in Lake Worth, and it had been an established pharmacy for like 30 years or so. It was very much part of the community. It was like a stone's throw within a city hall annex. And they had been ordering up so many, um, so much oxycodone um, from Malik Group that that particular company was worried. And, and when the, um, I think it was a quality control person from the distributor went down to speak with them, the pharmacist was really open. They said, oh, yeah, you know, we court pill mill business. You know, that's why when you come here, you see this long line of rather thin gentlemen, you know, kind of roughly dressed out there. You know? and, and, and so the, the distributors were, if they were supposed to be watching the hen house, they weren't watching their own hen house. And, and, of course, when the DEA did come down on them, you know, the DEA got quite a bit of pushback when it went after the distributors. Meanwhile, you've got in 2011 the suspicious orders that were reported the top state in the country that year happened to be Maryland. And uh, they reported 59 orders as suspicious. Um, hmm. By 2015, the, uh, the top state was California, and they reported 25,436. Well, that's a really good point, because sometimes we see what we're willing to see. I mean, certainly in Florida, everybody knew what was happening in terms of oxy sales. In 2009, 2010, four of Every in 30 milligram oxy sold in Florida, you know, I mean, 90 of 100 of the nation's top 100 oxy buying doctors in 2010, they were in Florida. I talked with John Pacenti to get his reaction to the INSYS video released this week. Well, we had heard about the video uh, mostly through uh, the pleadings of the government, but we had no idea how extraordinary this video actually is once once you actually see it. I mean, it's uh, it's a rap video. Uh, it's it's completely inappropriate for uh, any company, much less a pharmaceutical company. And it appears that uh, Alec Berlikoff, the vice president of sales, certainly uh, achieved what he was uh, aiming for in reshaping Insys Therapeutics in the vision of the movie uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. 
that hyper-masculinity, that toxic masculinity uh, just oozes from this video. And what he is actually shown in the video at the very end where he takes off uh, this, uh, the incest spray costume. Uh, it's absolutely surreal. And he is so amped up that it's, I mean, to me, it's disturbing. I understand that the jury was just uh, wrapped watching this thing. And how can you not be? I mean, the, you could see the type of culture that was, uh, you know, permeating at, uh, at incest, uh, that kind of, uh, almost frat like culture. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, and a very sexualized culture as well. I mean, it doesn't, uh, look anything like any kind of corporate uh, company should be uh, embracing. Yet here is a video, uh, a rap video, uh, a very somewhat lewd rap video, uh, promoting, uh, putting patients on one of the strongest opiates available. They, uh, they chant titrate, uh, which means, you know, to put the patient on higher and higher doses as if it's just a normal thing. Uh, I mean, the reason there was, we, we found more than 900 people died uh, directly from sepsis during this time. And you could see why. I mean, they were pushing doctors to put patients on higher and higher doses so they could get more profits. So you've studied them extensively. Do you feel as though this video is a fair representation of their culture? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, any company that, you know, let's go of uh, it's 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 Salesforce that is experienced in selling these very dangerous uh, drugs uh, and replaces them basically with cocktail waitresses, uh, strippers, uh, hairdressers and frat boys. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that he. Uh, saw the Wolf of Wall Street and was inspired to try to make that the reality at incest. This concludes our two-part series on the misleading sales practices in the pharmaceutical industry by companies both big and small. We've been joined by Palm Beach Post journalists John Pacenti and Pat Beal. Both have covered the pharmaceutical industry extensively. To read their columns, please see our blog posts for podcast episodes, 227 and 228. So, what have we learned? We learned that as far back as 2007, the industry knew the longer people stayed on opioids, the more likely they were to overdose and die from them. Yet, incentivizing doctors to prescribe increasingly higher doses and offering opioid savings cards to keep patients on opioids longer remain the industry's most powerful and widely used sales tactics to this day. Judges presiding over landmark cases, such as the racketeering case against INSYS Therapeutics and the multi-district litigation case of over 1,000 municipalities and tribes against the pharmaceutical industry, have an opportunity to stop Purdue Pharma and the others in the industry from choosing profits over people. Let's hope they do it. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things 
making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.